Good morning, everybody. Yeah, I'm gonna sit down with you, dude. No, come on. Come on with it. Okay. So, last week, Andy didn't get to finish, which was a good class, great class. Hey, it was fun. I enjoyed it. But you got right to the you got right to the precipice of well, my favorite part of Mark, because from this point, like a lot of stuff happens, uh, a lot of interesting things occur, uh, going forth from the end of uh, what five twenty one. Through chapter 6, a lot of stuff happens. So up until this point, we've been transversing the Sea of Galilee. We've been going back and forth across the lake to the other side, creating havoc on the other side, leaving, you know, getting kicked out of towns for healing people. A lot of interesting things have happened. I mean, we've encountered a, de de uh, how you say that, demoniac or a possessed person. We've seen a lot of pigs run off into the water and die. You know, and it just doesn't stop there. It's about to ramp. Jesus ramps it up a little bit more as we go back. It says here in uh, chapter 5, we'll pick up chapter 5, verse 21. Um, it says, when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, my little daughter's dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. So that's pretty interesting. This is a different response from a synagogue leader. You know, this guy's actually like, hey, no, I need your help, instead of, hey, how can I get rid of you? So at this point in time, Jarius has come to this man with such great faith to say, hey, you're the person I need to talk to. You can help me. I've seen what you've done. So we believe he's back on now the western side of this lake, which is a more Jewish area because we have a synagogue leader, which at the time it could be multiple. You have more than one. Uh, so this is one of the people. But I think it's pretty intriguing that we pay attention to the language here and see what it says. After it says that he talked to uh, him, he fell at his feet, which is a sign of him prostrating himself before Christ, which is pretty intriguing, in front of all these people because he's a synagogue leader. So he's just lowered himself. You know, before this rabbi, the rogue rabbi, we should say, because nobody likes him right now, especially the powers that be. They want to get rid of him, and here you are bowing in front of him. So as a leader of the synagogue. Well, did y'all notice what it said at the end of that? That is a large crowd. Um, and there was following and pressing against him. So we have a lot of people at this scene. And it's extreme amount of folks, which just plays into what's about to happen next. Because it keeps on going. He's on his way to go to Jarius' house. And there are a lot of people around him. So at this time, I just want y'all to take a moment to imagine your favorite rock star. I don't know who it might be, or rapper, whatever you may have. And imagine them trying to walk through the crowd at a concert. And all the crowd people are clamoring, trying to just touch him. You know, You've probably seen videos of this happening. When I was a kid, it used to be Michael Jackson or Prince when they would try to walk through the crowd and everybody would be around them. Uh, when I, one time I worked at the Ryman doing security, I got to see Lenny Kravitz uh, perform. And as he was going through the crowd one time, his security was trying to keep the people off of him because they all rushed. And in that moment, they were pressed in, and he's trying to walk. So I can imagine Jesus trying to get to Darius' house from the seaside, and he's walking. 
okay? And all these people have heard of all the great things he's done, and they want healing, they want this, they want to talk, they want to know, they want him to touch him, they want some kind of acknowledgement from Jesus, and he's steadily trying to press, while the disciples are probably running security detail around him, trying to keep the people off him so he can move forward. In the middle of all this, it says, Now a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had, and some was, was not helping at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. For she said, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Instantly, the flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. At once, Jesus realized in himself that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? And I'm like his disciples at this point. I'd be like, you see the crowd pressing against you, and yet you say, who touched you? <laughs> In other words, what do you mean who touched you? Everybody's touching you right now. Look at this crowd. But you're talking about one touch. What was so significant about this one touch? He felt something different from this one touch than he did from the others. Because I know people will probably touch him. But this one touch had an intention. This touch had faith in it. This woman reached out for life. This woman reached out for help. She reached out for healing just if she could just, she wasn't expecting to talk to him. She wasn't really expecting to touch him. She just wanted to touch something that was touching him and it would heal her. That's what her faith was. That's extreme. Because look at where she's at and what's going on, y'all. Number one, what, what, what do we have going on here in this scene? Can anybody think about it? What, who we have? Let's, let's look at the characters we have here. Number one, we have a ceremonially unclean woman. Doesn't mean she's sinful, as Andy pointed out last week. It means she's unclean. Why? She has a flow of blood. Or I presume this may mean a 12-year menstrual cycle, which would be death for most people. But for super women, which I give y'all all the praise. Y'all were built better than us. Because this is, when I read this and I think about this, I'm like, good Lord. 12 years. This poor woman had to suffer with this. So she can never be in community. Right. It's an it's a unnamed, un, unclean woman versus this high, high class named mm -hmm. man who is, you know, there's this. Dichotomy there. Yes. Because she was unclean and because everybody, I mean, everybody she knew, knew that, mm -hmm. she should not have been in the crowd. Exactly. What does that do to the crowd and the people she touched? Unclean. It would make them unclean. Even to the point of touching Jesus, technically, he should have been unclean. But that wasn't <laughs> in this moment. You see, nobody's noticing that. She grabs his garment just hoping that she could grab it. And she does. And she can feel that a change has occurred. But the miraculous piece about this is, is that Jesus is sitting there and he stops in his tracks to say, who just did that? Can you, can you imagine being one of the disciples or one of the many in the crowd and he stops and just screams, hold up, who touched me? Really? What was so different about the touch? It had to be something.
Bible says that he felt power go out from him. I'm not exactly sure what power going out from you feels like. I, I don't, I've never had that, mm-hmm. that feeling. So I really can't say what Jesus was feeling in that moment. But whatever it was, it was very profound to the point it made him stop and ask the question. You know, and at that very moment, it's kind of thinking about this scene in my mind's eye here, trying to recreate what's going on in this moment. To see this man literally stop with all these people pressed in against him and this woman fighting to get to him and she finally just grabbed his robe. You know, go ahead. So you think that maybe because of what's going on with her, everybody would know she's unclean, stay away from her. That drawing attention to her, you know, it could be like, hey, because I'm sure that was embarrassing for her to have that what was going on right but like in drawing attention to it it's like showing once again that he made the unclean clean mm-hmm. and just let everybody know it's not just about her healing but like showing everybody like the full picture right now like in drawing that attention it wasn't necessarily maybe for him but like for her it's like look y'all she's healed right and also it also shows you another thing that not everybody around Jesus was needing something or wanting that. It seems like someone was just trying to get to him maybe because he's popular. I don't know. Could be. But can you imagine how many blessings got blocked because of those people just clamoring around him and then she finally got in there and grabbed at him and was healed? Um, yes, ma'am. something else in this passage is the contrast mm-hmm. between the synagogue leader in the woman. It interrupts a story, yes. He, you know, it says he fell prostrate before mm-hmm. Jesus, which he was one of the leaders of the synagogue, and they were against Jesus. Right. And it says he kept begging him. Mm-hmm. He kept begging. Yes. And then she goes in he humbled himself before God. He humbled himself before Jesus. She was even she was even beyond humility. I mean, her self-image was probably <coughs> as low as a person could be. And so she had the faith to just touch a rope. Just, you know, if I could just. And then it says, when she did become afraid and they pull in she said he said your faith has made you well because she was afraid and then when Jairus' daughter dies he tells him don't be afraid only mm-hmm. believe and so I, I see a a difference in the in the character of the two individuals right but I also see a difference in their faith mm-hmm. that- and it I don't know what to do with that. It's like she had nothing else to lose. He was lo- getting ready to lose his daughter. So mm-hmm. she had nothing else good, to lose. So she good. was going to be like, whatever. She is do it. As a model of faith here for mm-hmm. the Jairus. Yeah. Afterwards, it seems like. Yes, yes. Yes, sir. I'm left with the impression that Jesus' power to heal was because of her faith and not because of his intentionality. He didn't even know what had happened, except that he knew how had left him, so he did what he does. 
it's like heartbeat for humans, I guess. A heart's beat because that's what they do. Right. She had faith he healed her, and he didn't even know he had healed her initially. Or at least I'm left with that impression Mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. what he acts about it. Right. I I can agree with that because there is a part where um, we go back home and begin in chapter 6. And when he's back at home, it says he didn't heal many people there. It was an issue of faith. Because the question with the people back at home was, who is he? What do you mean who is he? You were raised with him. That's the biggest problem. Sometimes when you're too close to a situation, you can't see the, tre- you can't see the trees because of the forest. You know? <laughs> and I think it was a situation. Their faith, like you just pointed out, wasn't where it needed to be. So he wasn't able to do too many things there because it had to have a faith that he could do it for him to do it. I think it's kind of, yeah. And Jairus, too, I mean, he goes and he falls down at his feet. And who else just had fallen down and begged at his feet earlier in the chapter? Is that demoniac, like early in the, the very first? So, like, there's just people over and over recognizing who Jesus is. Jairus doesn't know exactly who he is, right. but he, he recognizes this man as a power. And he does humble himself, mm-hmm. so, you know, takes a posture. I, I think it's just an exercise over and over of seeing how these different people are responding to Jesus. I agree. You know? Because you do see that theme of prostration coming in to Jesus from the demoniac to Jairus. And then we keep seeing this, this, this ongoing theme to keep building. I like how Mark does this with his building of the stories. and He gives them to you. Uh, because this one, what I found intriguing here, uh, it's all in one scene, but you have two situations going on. It's like this woman with the issue of blood interrupts a healing session that's about to happen. You know? He stops in the middle of the road to find out who she is. He didn't, he, he didn't know where she was at because there were so many people. So she had to make herself known, you know, when she did. And he t- look what he said to her. Daughter, your faith has saved you or healed you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. You know, now that's happened, right? We don't even get a chance to delve into what's going on there. Because what happens next? An attendant or somebody from the house comes up and says, Sir, leave him alone. Your daughter's dead. It's over with. It's done. You know, leave him alone. She's passed away. But Jesus says, No, I, I'm on my way to go to this house. I'm going. And it's kind of interesting that we got, you know, people are already there mourning. People are already there wailing and crying. And he comes in. He's like, What are you doing? She's just asleep. They laughed at him thinking he's nuts. What do you mean she sleeps? She's dead. He puts them out the house. Mother and forgets the parents and everybody come in. And then the Bible says he goes in there and he says, Talitia kum. Little girl to you, I say get up. And he raises this daughter who was once sick, was reported to be dead. He raised her up and she began to walk. And it says she was around 12 years old. And it says at this, they were utterly astounded. Then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Now notice, he didn't tell the woman he just here with the issue, don't tell anybody. Mm-hmm. He told her to go be healed, you know, keep going. But the people that watched him raise this child, he gives them that the he puts them into that messianic secret mode. Don't tell anybody what you saw here. They don't need to know this. You know, there's many different reasons we could think. 
or hypothesize that somebody may have told him, maybe that escalated tensions quicker than it needed to, which could have caused things to move at a different pace. Who knows? I, I don't. I, I don't have an idea, but Jesus has a knack of doing that when he tells people, just keep this quiet, or hey, go on about your business. Go back to your home. Go back to your friends. Tell them what God has done for you. So I think it's pretty intriguing in that, in this moment, in this scene, we have the girl that was sick, we have the woman who's healed of the issue, we have the girl die, Jesus raises her back up. Go ahead, sir. In, back in chapter one, mm-hmm. we saw the same thing happen, and it, what, with the result of people telling what Jesus had done, he couldn't even stay in the city, he had to go to the outside and then the crowd started coming outside to him there. It was really uh, kind of causing him trouble mm-hmm. to go and do and tell what he wanted. Uh, so then there are probably other reasons too, but that was in chapter one, one of the reasons. I mean, where he, when people have heard about what he's doing and everything, he draws a crowd pretty quickly, as we can see here. Because we dealt, we're dealing with a crowd that followed him from the lake on up into the, wherever Darius was living, these people were like waiting for him. They're following him. So it's almost like a fish concert. You know, <laughs> they're traveling great lengths to get to this guy and, and they're wanting to see him, you know. And even some would be settled for just a touch of the garment rather than of the man. Like I remember I used to work fish concerts. Some people just traveled to go tailgating. They never would go into the concert, but they'd just be out of the parking lot. But <laughs> this woman just wanted to get close enough to him. Now, in the beginning of the chapters, did I miss a hand over here? Oh, okay, well, I got you. I just want to share to overlook everybody. You're good. So we go in chapter 6. Let's go home to Nazareth. It says he left there and he came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things, they said. What is this wisdom that has been given to him? And how are these miracles performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Jose, Judas, and Simon? Aren't, aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. Huh. Intriguing. They know your whole entire family. They know you. Some of these people probably went to uh, the little synagogue school that they had. It probably were there with you, raised up, learning about Torah, you know, about the prophets. They were right there with you. So how in the world did you get this? And they didn't. So immediately, it's offensive to people. I mean, I'm trying to figure out how a miracle would be offensive. I'm, I'm st- I still wrestle with that. To see other people who were made, who were hurting and infirm, now being made whole. I'm trying to figure out how that can be offensive to me. I'm trying to put myself in those shoes, and the only thing I keep coming up with is jealousy. Uh, only time I, people really get offended with other people doing good is when they're jealous of that purpose uh, rise that God may have blessed them with. Uh, and it seems in this moment here that the people at home uh, are more skeptical of Jesus because they know his family, they know his mama, they know his sister. Notice they didn't mention his father. <laughs> They talk about who he is, the son of Mary, the brothers of James, uh, uh, Jose, Judas, and Simon. And aren't his, they didn't even name his sisters. Aren't his sisters with us? So where is he getting all this information from? Where does this come from? What is this wisdom? How does he do the miracles? 
He's trying to one-up us. And this can happen in real life. I one time, I'll never forget one time after going to Lipscomb, I was in the middle of my master's degree working on my MD of at Lipscomb. I was invited back home to preach. And I went back home and I preached. And I got finished. I had this one when my cousin's husband came up to me and says, you were just trying to show out. What? <laughs> How? What are you talking about? This ain't about me. You know, I'm just doing what I've been trained to do. I'm doing it better than I did it before because I've been trained to do it. In this situation here, they're trying to figure out where his training came from because they, they didn't get the same training, but they were at the same places, you know. So it's intriguing to see how they responded to him. And then in verse 4, Jesus said, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. How, you know, how Jesus subjects himself to that humility. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just I just find it amazing that he puts himself in that situation. Why would he, why would he subject himself if he is the rock star? Mm-hmm. But it's, it's because, I mean, he's, he's a, a pattern for us. I mean, just don't take yourself too seriously. But, I mean, he, he wasn't. I'm just saying he put himself right in a situation where he was going to come back down to earth in a hurry. Mm-hmm. He sure did. If he had any pride in what he was doing, if he had any, you know, I'm the rock star or whatever, he, which obviously he didn't, but... Yeah, this would have shattered it. Yeah, this would have definitely shattered that rock star image if he had that in his own head. Because of the way they acted when he got home. He says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and his household. He was not able to do a miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. He was going around the villages teaching. So he's amazed at how much they didn't believe just because of what he they had seen and versus the things he had heard. Because remember, some of the miracles were done in Nazareth at the beginning of the ministry. You know, they saw some of these things. But yet at this point, they heard some of the teachings and then still not like any, no faith was generated there. It seems that it caused something else to happen. So in the next pericope, we run into... Go, go ahead, I'm sorry. Jealousy is very self-focused. Mm-hmm. And when you're very self-focused, you're belonging to yourself. Right. You don't see what's going on around you because you're only seeing inward. Good point. Narcissism is a beast. Mm -hmm. uh, and say, for instance, if one of your synagogue leaders are more concerned about their power and their position, they would definitely be at the head of that crowd trying to say, okay, he don't know what he's talking about or I don't know where he got this from, you know. I, I can see that definitely happen in, in, in his hometown. You know, it's exactly how he said it here. There, the prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, where the people who grew up with him and know him will scrutinize the hardest. Yes, ma'am. I think Mary at some point would have been instructed by God not to talk about his birth to her other children. and it feel, I feel like, you know, even, even they were skeptical about him but you know to me as a mother you would probably, you'd probably be talking to your kids about you know the miracle of your brother's birth and what happened and they would have some sort of inkling as to what was to come but it feels like I don't think she did maybe she just didn't think about it like this 
back in the day, our fa our grandparents, parents era, some things happened you don't even know about. Because yeah. why? They don't talk about those things. You know, growing up, I learned that certain things happened in my family. I didn't find out I was a grown man, and like recently. <laughs> and my mom was like, we just didn't talk about those things. We don't talk about that. So sometimes certain things, and this wasn't a popular situation with his birth, because it was still scrutinized by everybody in the family. I mean, we're human. Think about how they talk about this woman. Joseph was such a good man. He took her in, and even that old child of hers, and he loved him just like it was his own. But we know God, oh, thank bless his heart. You know it wasn't him. This was probably going around in Mary when she would go places. You know, Mary was kind of like the woman at the well. People knew her story, but they weren't going to talk about it outwardly. They were murmuring in the corners and in the shadows, but you heard those murmurs. So I, I think, you know, the kids may have heard an inkling on the streets, but I bet you it wasn't, just my personal thing, that they probably wasn't talked about in the house, which is why his brothers and sisters don't understand the significance of who he really is. Yes, and probably in that era, just like maybe in recent years, not this era, but in recent years, a child born out of wedlock was looked upon as Mm-hmm. Right. And they can get sent away to a, a home to have the baby. Sometimes you look at the hearing, you can see how God has a sense of humor, how he puts things together, um, and the way he does these things. One thing about Jesus' family that sticks out to me is like, yeah, we see these a few times where his family comes and like, you know, at least hear the reference, like, aren't they with us? And like, sometimes they come to him and try to like, check on him to see how he's doing. Like, we just don't know what their faith level is in him. But the thing that's encouraging to me is that James, like the book of James, is probably Jesus' brother, James, who's the elder in the church in Jerusalem, you know, in, in Acts. And so, like, somehow it seems like there was, he didn't know, he's going to come to check on him and say, like, I don't, it seems like he was suspicious of his, you know, his claims. But then later on, he becomes a church leader right. and writes the epistle of James. So, like, for me, that's, that's a, a kind of a faith point that's helpful, a handhold. Like, well, if Jesus' half brother James ended up believing in him, it's pretty tough to convince your own siblings of things, right? So like, maybe, uh, you know, that's that's just an interesting community. Oh, yeah. James's faith in his brother eventually comes around. Yeah. A strong leader in the church. <laughs> Definitely. Exactly, because you would because at that time and how people think, well, how could that be any kind of good? Why would God bless this situation? But once again, look at what God usually goes for. He's always had a heart for the oppressed, a heart for the downtrodden, a heart for those who people have counted out on. 
So look at the situation he comes out of. From a, from a sociological standpoint, looking from the outside, looking in, this is a very bad situation culturally, socially, you know, it's one of those taboos, but the savior of the world is coming out of the middle of it. You know, it's kind of intriguing. It seems like the people that were knowing growing up and having the hardest time believing that there had been this transformation and he was actually out there giving people, if they knew him as a kid and they knew him as bigger than a kid but not the age he was. Right. They asked the question, what is this wisdom given to him? Because uh. if he wasn't healing people before and suddenly they're having to come to grips with now he's this person but we didn't know him as this person before. That would be the hardest, the hardest. Exactly. Thing. How did he become this guy? How did, how did this Jesus of Nazareth become who he is now? Because this is not who he's always been. How did, this is what I think what perplexed those people. Maybe so-and-so's brother, so-and-so's sister. In Jerusalem. Right. Yeah, I'm not saying that, but he was a troublemaker. Because he got lost for three days from his parents, and we had to go looking for him. You see what I'm saying? There's so many different ways of looking at it, but those are all great perspectives of seeing the story and seeing the narrative that we have here put in front of us. Because this man who everybody's questioning, how do you get this and how do you get this? Look what happens next. He commissions 12 guys, which will be significant to the community. Why would you pick 12 people? Say it one more time. Exactly, 12 tribes. This is significant. So he picks these 12 people and he sends them out to do ministry. And he doesn't give them anything to go. He says, basically, God's going to provide. It's simple terms, you know. But he gave them kind of parameters to go by. If this happens, this happens, you do this. If this doesn't happen, then you do this. And you keep it going. So it says they went out, they drove out demons, uh, and let's see, anointed many sick people and, and healed them. They did a lot of good. But I think the next part of Mark kind of throws me off a little bit. We've had the great healing stories here. We've had the rejection. We've had the appointments. Now we have the retelling of a story we hadn't really got into yet. And that is John, his cousin, John the Baptizer, John the Baptist. Uh, this now goes into the story of Herod Antipas taking his head from request of Herod Antipas's. Andy, would that be his stepdaughter or his, I don't know what that child would be to that man? Well, they, Herodias didn't marry Antipas, did she? She was just shacking up with him, right? I don't know if they got married or not. Because she was Philip. So his, his like, sister-in-law. Yeah. So his niece-in-law. Uh, is that what you call it? <laughs> It's a, it's a crazy story, but I find it interesting that Mark puts the, in, the information here. You know, we find out that John the Baptizer is dead because of Herod. We find out that Herod beheads him. But then Mark knew, gave us the details of exactly what happened and why Herod did this to this man. You know, it tells a story about how John the Baptizer was speaking out against this illicit relationship between Herodias and Herod Antipas because Herodias was the Philip's wife, Herod Antipas's brother. You know, I think it's really interesting that this woman's name is Herodias and her husband's name is Herod. <laughs> but anyway, it tells you the story about how she manipulated the whole situation 
and had Herod Antipas to utilize his power in order to neutralize a threat to her, which was John. Because John was openly preaching against that relationship. And he, she utilized her daughter's dancing skills. And Herod Antipas, in a fit of, I guess, lust, said, I'll give you anything up to half of my kingdom. What do you want? And she went and talked to her mom, and her mom said, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. I don't know if any of you have ever seen this that movie that used to come out around Easter about this story. Um, but they actually depict that, and the little girl comes back out, or they come back up, and they have this platter, and they take the top off, and there's his head. That 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 messed me up as a kid. I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm like, I looked at my dad. I'm like, they just chopped this man's head off over a dance, really? But yeah, he got beheaded. So Herod is hearing now that because of the things Jesus is doing, that maybe John the Baptizer has been resurrected. So he begins to question that, and he asks the question: the one I beheaded, he's been raised. So it kind of shows you that this interest has now been piqued by Herod because he's hearing about what Jesus did. Um, but Herod, so that kind of, it gives you a glimpse that Herod is hearing about Christ. And what he's hearing about the people, what they're saying is that he may have been John resurrected. And Herod's like, who, the one I killed? This is kind of the situation. And then it just goes on ahead and tells a story that John's disciples heard about it when they found that he'd been killed. They came and removed his body and the corpse and they placed it in a tomb. Well, then the most, one of my most favorite stories is this next one, the feeding of the 5,000. You know, and in chapter 8, we're going to have feeding of the 4,000. But right here, we're feeding 5,000 people, and it said that Jesus and his disciples were trying to get to a remote place, a remote spot. I'm not exactly sure where this remote place or spot would be around the lake because they got into a boat and sailed off uh, in the beginning and at the end of the story. And then later it said remote. Some people say, that, well, he took them into the desert. You know, God loves to meet people in the desert. And when he meets them in the desert, he tests them. But there's grass out here. I don't know about grass being in the desert. I'm not familiar with the area that well. One day I might get to see it. But I'm trying to figure out where there are really green pastures that people can sit on in the desert. If we're in a desert. I'm familiar with a desert being in the south, but not up in the northern areas near this lake. So I might have to look at the topography, topography a little bit better. But anyhow... It talks about all these people coming and following Jesus. And when he got in the boat this time, he stayed close to shore because they were able to follow on foot and beat him to where he was going. And when they got there, he started teaching them and everything. And then late, he got later, and his disciples come to Jesus and said, these people need to get you send them away. They need to be fed. They're hungry. And Jesus says something kind of odd that I think. He looks at his disciples and says, you feed them. Do you want us to go ahead and buy all this food and, and spend this money and he just told me you feed him, and he started asking about what they had. And somebody said, "We got what two two loaves of bread and five fish." I think it is five loaves, five loaves and two fish. And then he instructed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. That still perplexes me. Uh, so they sat down in the group of hundreds and fifties, and he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves. He kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. Everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up 12 baskets full of pieces of bread and fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were 5,000 men. What do we see missing from this? It's women and children. You see women and children missing. What else? 
There's no awe. Nobody's astounded he just fed all these people with this meager amount of food. Nobody's astounded. Like just like, I mean, who do you know that can do this every day? And it didn't have to spend money. Remember, they were asking him, should we go out and spend X amount of dollars to go buy food? And he asked, what do we have? And they brought him what they had, and he made it stretch. Now, growing up in my house, I know my mom can make some stuff stretch, but she couldn't do this. And these folks didn't even bat an eye. It's kind of intriguing that that happened like that. Nobody was in awe that he just fed them with this. And this kind of moves pretty fast into the next scene. Uh, when he puts them in the boat and tells them to go across the lake, he went to a solitary place to pray. Because sometimes after these big scenes like this, Jesus has to get away from the people, has to get away from the crowds. He goes to pray, and in the middle of that, if he gets done praying, it's in the middle of the night. The Bible says he looks out on the lake, he sees his disciples straining at the oars trying to get across the lake. You know, I've heard some stories that this lake or the Sea of Galilee is like eight miles wide, and at the center is about 95 feet feet deep and stuff like that. But I do think it's intriguing that these men are experiencing a storm out in the middle of the lake trying to get to the other side. <clears throat> other side. And in Mark's story, it's kind of funny, but it almost sounds like Jesus tried to sneak past them. <laughs> it's not like the other Gospels where he just walks, hi, it's, hi, hello, I'm in the middle of the storm, I'm walking on these waves. No, it says that he wanted to pass by them, but they happened to just see him. Could you imagine being on a boat, fighting the waves, winds blowing, storms going, and all of a sudden you have been... Y'all see that ghost? We're about to die. You know, <laughs> things are getting bad, and all of a sudden the ghost starts talking back to you, talking about, don't be afraid, it's me. Okay, let me walk on over here to the boat and then the storm stops. That, that, that story right there is pretty intriguing. Um, I think... Everything we read today, like he heals this little girl and give her something to eat, you know. I mean, she's going to need something to eat. Exactly. Right? She's been dead, you know. Feed her. And, you know, he's like messing around I'm with you on that. I am definitely with you on that because in this one, I'm going to be honest, in this passage, because this is the only type of the feeding of the 5,000 is recorded in all four Gospels. Then you got this afterward, and most of them, you have this walking on the water and situation happening. But this one, out of all of them, is the one that makes me laugh because it says he wishes to pass by him. And just in my, this is my weird imagination, I can see him tiptoeing on the water. <laughs> just trying to get past me after seeing and he has to walk over there but um, it's so intriguing on what Jesus does man after he comes out of his moment of solitude he goes out there and comforts those men who are afraid of the boat in the middle of the storm you know those storms have been known to sink boats and he walks out there to him because he got caught <laughs> walking that's just an intriguing story to me but and all of that, they still didn't have all over the 5,000. That perplexes me. I'm going to have to do a little more digging on that. But that scene moves so fast into the boat scene 
That's when you see the awestruck people is in the boat. But they didn't even think about all the pieces of what they had in the boat with them that they'd taken from the feeding. The feeding kind of almost got overlooked, but that's intriguing. But we're going to stop <clears throat> right there, and we'll pick up there on 6.53 next Sunday. Uh, thank you, Andy, for giving me another opportunity thank to you, be with y'all this morning. And thank you all for the great comments. Appreciate that a lot. Y'all go and be well.